Hello and welcome to today's seminar on the response to COVID-19 in South Asia. I am Chelsea Farrell, the Assistant Director of the Lakshmi Mental and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. The mission of the Institute is to engage through interdisciplinary research to advance and deepen the understanding of critical issues relevant to South Asia and its relationship with the world. As part of this engagement, the Institute is running a series this spring on a number of topics related to COVID-19. We're so glad you joined us today, and please consider joining us for the next week's seminar as well. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce the moderator of today's panel, Dr. Vikram Patel. Dr. Patel is the Pershing Square Professor of Global Health at Harvard Medical School and holds honorary professorial appointments at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. His work has focused on child development, adolescent health, and mental health in India for over two decades. He is moderating this call from his home in Goa, India. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Patel. Uh, thank you very much, Chelsea. And let me first of all start by welcoming all of you to this uh, webinar. Um, I would like to particularly thank our four panelists who I'll introduce in a moment. But before I introduce them, I wanted to give some context and background uh, about the purpose of the seminar and what we hope to achieve uh, during the next one and a half hours. Friends, I think we all know that the lives of billions of people around the world have been completely upended uh, by the COVID-19 virus, uh, not only by the impact of the infection directly on lives lost, uh, but also as a result of the policies that have sought to control its spread, particularly the policies that have sought to control its spread through shutting down, to various degrees, social and economic life in countries. Nowhere is this more true than in South Asia, where more than a billion people have now been under a lockdown, which according to the University of Oxford, ranks as the most stringent anywhere in the world, four weeks now and possibly at least another couple of weeks ahead. There have been raging debates both in the region, but also across the world about the most appropriate way to contain and ultimately defeat this pandemic. And these debates have touched on many issues. It's not possible for us uh, to cover all those issues in this webinar. But instead, what we have decided as a panel is to focus on three overriding issues that keep cropping up uh, in these debates. The first is the tension between saving lives and saving livelihoods. Now, some have argued that this is an immoral question because lives must always come before livelihoods. Yet others have argued that it is a meaningless question because lives and livelihoods are inseparable and that policies must take into account the balance between lives and livelihoods because the loss of livelihoods will directly or indirectly lead to the loss of lives. The second issue is the continuing challenge about testing, about having an accurate count of the numbers of people who are infected. And the real challenge isn't only the numbers of tests that are carried out, but also the kinds of individuals who are being tested. And because there seems to be no standardized protocol to this, there are enormous variations in testing protocols, which means in turn that it is impossible to compare estimates across time and space. For example, we are told that the numbers of cases in the state of Maharashtra are much higher than the numbers of cases, say, for example, in the northeast of India. But also the absolute number of tests is vastly different between these two uh, regions. Is it that the numbers of cases are simply reflecting the numbers of tests carried out? 
Related to this, of course, is the other big concern that people have had in the region about the accuracy of some of the earliest mathematical models, whose predictions really, I think, drove a lot of anxiety about the potential impact of this pandemic uh, on, uh, on, live, on lives lost in the region. And I think also perhaps potentially drove some of the, uh, the, the policies that followed. The third issue is the way the information about the pandemic has been communicated. For example, the cowlish reporting of the numbers dead reported each day on the front page of our newspapers and the numbers of cases rising day upon day cumulatively has no nuance really about the epidemiological precision of these numbers or what they actually mean. Or equally, the scary numbers that are being communicated about the numbers dead from rich countries fail to address, for example, the extremely different aid structure of those societies or the social circumstances of the dead. For example, very few know that the average age of death in Italy is around 80, uh, and about a third of all the people who've died in Italy died in old age care homes. And I think we can begin to see that generalizing from those numbers to South Asia is extremely difficult, given not only the very small numbers of older people uh, in, 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 in the region, but also the fact that old age care homes are not part of our landscape. Similarly, the numbers of those people who have died, numbering about 400 in India as of the latest count, uh, needs to be put in the context of the fact that this constitutes less than 0.1% of all the deaths that have occurred in India uh, since the first case was reported uh, at the end of January. Friends, our goal today is not to do a post-mortem of the policies to date. No, I think the real goal is to be forward-looking. And what we really want to do is to harness the lessons that we've learned over the last many months uh, with a focus on the region, but also drawing on global experience to really think about what should policy look like in the coming weeks. We need to interrogate what has been the impact of the policy so far. We need to look into the future to ask questions about how prepared is the region in order to address what is inevitable, the future surges and clusters of cases that will emerge as the lockdown is lifted, because of course, the lockdown has not eliminated the infection, uh, but it has only stopped transmission while the lockdown is in place. At the same time, we also need to consider how can the lives of those whose livelihoods have been shattered be rebuilt? How can we prevent, for example, the deaths due to hunger and despair uh, that are looming on the horizon? Now, for this very, very ambitious task, we have assembled an amazing, incredible interdisciplinary panel spanning expertise in epidemiology, health policy, public health, anthropology, and economics. And importantly, all our panelists are deeply rooted in South Asia. And indeed, three of the four panelists, like myself, are in fact joining this webinar from their homes in India uh, and Bangladesh. I'd like to briefly introduce all four of them, and then we will turn over to the panel. Each panelist will have about 10 minutes uh, to respond to some questions that I've placed, the issues that I've, uh, uh, I've highlighted, and then we will have a Q&A session between the panelists as well as questions uh, that those of you on the webinar have submitted. So let me start with the introductions. Uh, uh, my dear friend, Richard Cash, uh, is with the Department of Global Health at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. He's currently at his home in Cambridge, uh, uh, Massachusetts. 
He has worked on infectious diseases issues in South Asia for over 50 years as a scholar in residence, as a researcher, and as a teacher in the region, much loved by many, many uh, uh, people in the, in the region, and currently directs a course at the Chan School on social, political, and economic dimensions of infectious diseases in low-resource settings, very germane to our conversations today. Professor Srinath Reddy, my mentor in India. Uh, Srinath is the president of the Public Health Foundation of India and formerly the head of the Department of Cardiology at the All India Institute of Medical Sciences uh, in New Delhi. He also serves as an adjunct professor of epidemiology at Harvard and at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Srinath is very well known as the chair of the high-level expert group uh, that drafted the universal health coverage uh, a framework for India uh, and is also currently serving on a number of technical committees to inform policy making at state and central levels. Dr. Shamika Ravi is an economist. She's a senior fellow in the Governance Studies Program of the Brookings Institution. Uh, she's a former member of Prime Minister Modi's Economic Advisory Council. She trained uh, in economics uh, at New York University and is very uh, accomplished in publishing in the field of economics, particularly development economics and economics as applied to healthcare. And finally, uh, Dr. Sabina uh, Rashid has been working since 1993 uh, in a range of different organizations in Bangladesh, including BRAC, the Grameen Trust and UNICEF. She joined BRAC, uh, uh, the, school of, uh, the James P. Grant School of Public Health, uh, um, in 2004 and was appointed its dean in 2013. Her expertise is largely in implementation research and advocacy, particularly the area uh, of reproductive health programs for, uh, for young women uh, and for adolescents. Let me now turn to our first panelist. Um, as I said, we have three broad issues and the panelists are free to address any of those, but also I have some specific questions for each of the panelists uh, that they may uh, choose to respond to in their remarks. Richard, you're living in a country uh, where uh, we now have the largest number of lives lost uh, due to this infection. And interestingly enough, similar to India, uh, there are very, raging divisive debates on a number of similar issues. For example, the number of tests that have been carried out, uh, the balance between lives lost and livelihoods lost. Uh, and also, I guess, uh, from the particular US perspective, uh, the fragmentation of the response across states. But paradoxically, of course, uh, one of the big complaints that people have in the US, which is the opposite to India, is that the president of the US did not respond quickly enough, uh, uh, even when he should have. In contrast, in India, of course, people are remarking on how strong and how early the response of the prime minister was. So my question to you really is, what can we learn from the US experience and indeed that of other countries around the world, which can serve to guide what we might be doing in South Asia? Uh, and, and what is your opinion about this controversy around inadequate testing uh, as the bedrock of ep epidemic containment? Richard, over to you. Thank you very much, uh, uh, Vikram. Uh, let me uh, uh, cover this uh, in the following way. I'm going to speak a bit about the global uh, pandemic, then the response, and then I will turn to India and put India within that context. I want to emphasize that word context because the epidemic itself and the response is highly uh, affected by the context. Uh, we know that this is caused by a coronavirus, uh, SARS-CoV-2. It's a respiratory disease uh, uh, with a uh, R0 of about 2.4, that is about 2.4 individuals 
are infected for every case. Uh, it plays out differently depending on the demographics. That is the age structure, the density of the population, the behavior. Of a thousand infections, not cases, but infections, about 85%, and these are estimates, are either mild or asymptomatic cases. Uh, the remainder are uh, clear clinical cases of which a small percentage, uh, 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 less than 5% of that remaining 15% are severe and may lead to death. The infection to, to fatality ratio is estimated as either between 0.3 and 0.7%. Uh, that is three to seven deaths per thousand infections, not cases, but infections. The incubation period is about five days. Uh, and from the time of symptoms to death is about 20 days. Now, the response globally has been very, very different depending on context. Uh, in Wuhan, in, in China, uh, which uh, they picked up the epidemic uh, fairly uh, late into the uh, spread of the uh, coronavirus. There was a very severe lockdown, which reduced spread, but did, uh, which reduced a, a what's called a surge, that is the number of severe cases, but it was an afterthought. The places that we should look for, for a, a, an, a very appropriate response are uh, South Korea and especially Taiwan. Uh, where because of their experience with SARS uh, earlier on, 10 years earlier or so, uh, there was, they were geared up to uh, respond very, very aggressively uh, to this particular um, uh, uh, outbreak. That is, they uh, screened uh, early, they isolated uh, early, uh, they, uh, and provided care. There was quarantining. Uh, there was contact tracing. But this was all done very, very early in the course of the disease. Now, in the United States, it was taken up much later. By the time uh, responses were, uh, were picked up, uh, there was, the epidemic was already well established. Uh, now, in the United States, there are about 92 people per square mile, or 36 per, per square kilometer. We'll see the difference when we look at India. The mean age is around 38.5 years. Uh, physical distancing uh, is, uh, uh, is possible. Uh, many people live in their own homes, but there are some regions, some areas, some communities where there is very, very intense uh, uh, living together. Uh, again, the context, demographics, cultural, government resources, and so on. Uh, now, let's look at the situation in India. Here, the population density is 464 per square kilometer, uh, over almost five times greater than the U.S. In Bangladesh, it's uh, 1,115 people per square kilometer, over almost 11 times more densely populated than in the United States. Uh, Mumbai, uh, and this is not looking into the actual uh, intense populations in Mumbai, where there are 70% is uh, considered slum, uh, where there may be four or five people staying in a room. The median age in India is about 28 years. It's a much younger population, with 28% below the age of 14. 
uh, in the United States, it's only, it's 18%. And above those uh, over 65, in India, it's about 6%. The United States is about 17%. Why do I mention that? Because most of the deaths that have occurred have occurred in the older age group. 80% of the deaths in the United States, and, uh, and this is reflected in many other places, are in the over 65-year age group. Now, what has then been the response? Well, to talk about India as one place, of course, uh, uh, is, uh, is a fool's errand because there are many, many uh, uh, cultures and states in India, uh, and a state like Kerala has done a remarkable job in terms of uh, creating uh, uh, messages, physical distancing, uh, and a, uh, a intervention that uh, is built on over 50 years of social uh, support for their community. That is not the case in much of India. Uh, and that is, uh, and, and that is uh, what we are trying to address. So let's take a look at what is possible and what is the situation there. As I noted, the age structure is much younger in India than, and I'm looking now at all of India, although I gave you the example of Kerala and there are other uh, examples that I could give. But overall, the age structure is much lower. The, uh, and why is that important? Because for those infections under the age of 14, there is essentially no disease. Uh, there have been essentially no deaths in children under 14 years of age, and that's important to recognize. So 30%, almost 30% of India will not experience even if they are infected, any mortality. Elderly people in India, the 6%, most of them are looked after in their home. There are not uh, uh, chronic care facilities, old age homes, and so on. Uh, there are in India, but very, very few. Most of the, or many of the deaths, 30%, it's estimated in New York and other places, have been directly related to people living in these extended care facilities. Uh, what about uh, this idea that by locking down, that is by keeping people uh, forcibly uh, from physical contact, not social contact, but physical contact, because that's what we're trying to do. Uh, this uh, is very difficult because 80 to 90% in India are daily laborers who are not salaried, unlike uh, uh, government employees and so on. Uh, who are salaried, these individuals are not. They live on daily wages. What about the whole issue of health care? That is, one of the reasons for lockdown was to reduce the surge of illness. The fact remains is that within India, given their, uh, uh, the health infrastructure, uh, the few ICU hospital beds, the limited number of physicians and, and nurses, and respirators and so on, there is not, uh, every day is a surge day within the Indian hospital system. So by preventing a surge, you will not really have accomplished much of anything. The epidemic will continue to spread. It will not be stopped by this, by any type of lockdown situation. Uh, the epidemic will continue to spread and will spread uh, uh, maybe a bit faster. 
What about testing? The issue of testing has been brought up. In Korea, at the height of their testing, they were in Korea as a population one fifteenth the size of India. They were doing 10,000 a day. India has just announced that they are doing 13,000 a day for a population of 1.3 billion. Widespread testing is not going to uh, uh, go forward and will be useful only in defining small uh, epidemics. Uh, much of the diagnosis in India now and in the future will be through syndromic uh, a diagnosis. Uh, so the health system, the testing, and so on are all uh, uh, a very, very different level than in Europe or in East Asia. And my strong message is that the whatever intervention is planned for the future, uh, because as you noted, Vikram, what is done is done, must take into account the context that is India, its demography, its age structure, its health infrastructure, uh, its resources, and so on, and should not try to uh, mimic a system uh, where in the US they spend $11,000 per capita in health, and India spends $75 per capita in health. They should not try to mimic this particular uh, uh, intervention strategy because I do not believe that it is appropriate uh, within the Indian context. So let me stop at that point. Thank I you. Thank you, Richard. Thank, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Richard. Let me move swiftly on to Srinath. Uh, Srinath, I wanted to pick up on a couple of pieces that Richard mentioned as well in your, in your response. Um, one of the curious things in India that uh, you have also written about is the fact that we have, despite a very densely packed population, not seen the kind of spread that one would have feared. Um, and I wonder to what extent that could be also attributed, apart from the age structure of the population, to the early actions that were taken uh, by the government. So while there's been a lot of critiques about the lockdown, I also would like to hear your thoughts about maybe what might have been some of the positive uh, impacts of the lockdown. Um, I'm also curious uh, about the notation that you have also observed that there's been apparently a rising number of cases actually in the last few weeks. Is that a sign of success that we're doing better case finding or how does one interpret uh, those rising numbers or is it indeed a sign that perhaps the epidemic was already already in place even before the lockdown? And finally, I, I think something that Richard also spoke to, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this idea of one size fits all. Uh, you know, what is your thought about having a single policy for a continental nation like India with such enormous epidemiological and social cultural diversity? Srinath Reddy, over to you. Uh, thank you, Vikram. Let me start by saying that a decision to have a complete lockdown is never an easy one. Frequently, looking at the global scenario of surging cases, even OECD countries in a state of collapse in terms of their health systems, it becomes a question of damned if you do, damned if you don't. So you still have to take some decisions. There are some negative consequences, very unfortunate in terms of the social and economic impact. And I'm particularly distraught at what has happened to the migrants and what are the problems being faced by the informal workforce. Nevertheless, public health considerations pushed it to the forefront. Now, let me deal with what might have been the positives that we can still take away. 
Firstly, it does appear from a variety of sources of data that we have actually accomplished the result of slowing down the epidemic in terms of reducing the infection spread rate. And therefore, I think, how do we say that? Firstly, look at it as a triangle. At the top of the triangle are the serious cases getting hospitalized. In the middle of the triangle are cases for staying at home isolated. And at the bottom of the triangle are the people who may be totally asymptomatic or very minimally asymptomatic. Testing may not be able to get to the bottom of the triangle, but syndromic surveillance of households is taking place in many states. And that's giving you the middle of the triangle. No major caseload there. You're also seeing at the top of the triangle, hospitals not being crowded. There's no big rush for the hospitals. Admissions right now at the moment. Therefore, all of this would suggest that there has been some impact in trying to markedly reduce, if not completely disrupt, the chain of transmission. But that is one public health objective that has been achieved. Now, secondly, there have been many other positive outcomes. Firstly, there has been a much greater degree of appreciation overall about the importance of public health and the need to strengthen public health systems. The neglect of the past could possibly be addressed as we go along. There is a much greater element of partnerships emerging, not only of strengthening the public sector, but also mobilizing both the healthcare and non-healthcare sectors and the private sector in order to provide a cohesive response. The private sector is also stepping in now to produce more APIs rather than import from China. They're stepping to produce ventilators to produce uh, personal protection equipment. And all of that is happening now when the importance of building a strong health system, belatedly though, but nevertheless, is being realized. Then you have a much greater degree of social solidarity that has been mobilized across the people. There is a great deal of citizen participation, particularly in states like Kerala, Andhra Pradesh, and Odisha, and even elsewhere too. Finally, the tone and tenor of the political de debate has softened from being a very acerbic nature of conversation to a much more accommodative, unity-focused conversation. And therefore, there is a much greater political unity, which is also reflected in much better center-state coordination. The center and the states are all on one page now. These are all the positives that I believe we should take away. Now, let me come to some of the points that Richard has raised, saying that India should not have followed the same pattern as some of the countries with much older population. But the comorbidities that actually predict adverse outcomes like hypertension, diabetes, chronic respiratory disease, all of them are actually seen at a much younger age in Indian population. At least 10 to 15 in the Western population, and we have a fairly high prevalence of those, especially in urban areas. We also have malnutrition at the younger age groups, even in the reproductive health age group of women, and even in the teenagers. So you have a challenge there. You cannot predict exactly how the virus is going to affect us. Lastly, Richard also mentioned that we 
or to, we have a very poor health system. Uh, yes, we do have a weak health system relative to many of the OECD countries. And that's why we must be extra cautious in preventing a huge surge of cases that can overwhelm us. On one hand, Richard cannot say and should not say that you are not going to have too many cases. On the other hand, say you're going to have a daily surge. Of course, we must be prepared for reducing the surge if we can. And lastly, also the testing business. If we feel that we are at a low risk population, then you should not hold us to account for the testing numbers. Even then, for every 24 case detected, 24 tests have been performed. And I don't think we ought to be looking at testing as the sole mantra that we should be depending upon. If you look, for example, Kerala, which most of you are familiar with, Kerala has achieved excellent success in control, despite a low testing rate compared to international averages. But if you want to go global, look at Bolivia and Belgium, same population, very different testing rates. And the death rate in Bolivia is extraordinarily low. And you have, on the other hand, Belgium, a hundredfold higher rate of deaths. Now, therefore, Richard's original point that conditions in each country differ are very important, and you should not apply the same testing logic to India as to other countries. We have to have differentiated approaches in our own context. Now, as far as uh, whether we are actually seeing uh, the spillover of cases, even from the past exposure into the three weeks or four weeks of the initial lockdown, of course, there are bound to be. Given the incubation period of the virus, which can extend up to 14 days, we are going to see, at least in the initial period of the lockdown, some of the cases that are going to spill over. Even when you shut the tap in a, in a garden hose, there is still some water left in the garden hose. But also, remember, the lockdown is never 100% successful. There are slippages. So there will be cases mounting. We are going to see more rising cases. We are still on the ascending limb. But the idea is to reduce the slope and quickly bend it as we can. And we'll see what success we have achieved when the lockdown is finally over. But at the moment, the indicators are suggestive. And Shamika is going to talk more about doubling times. I'm not going to get into that. But all of these actually suggest that we have achieved some public health success as well, apart from all the other benefits I have stated. Now, coming to the question of strategies, certainly we must have differentiated strategies. India is a very large country, and we cannot afford to have a single strategy for the entire country. Yes, at the central level, with consultation and consent from the states, policy must be made in a variety of areas. At the state level, planning must be made for the entire state, but implementation with flexibility, depending upon context-specific realities, must be made at the district level. And that is where we are actually going in now. We are profiling each district. We are looking at the realities of whether the district is hot or warm or cold. And then decentralized decision-making will guide our path forward. And finally, I also actually would like to tell Richard that yes, a lot of our elderly people stay at home. They don't live in old age homes. That's exactly the reason why the lockdown was needed, to give enough time for reducing the virus 
levels and so that we can deal with it later on. Because if we had actually not imposed it, the young people would have straight away carried it into the homes where joint families are living and the elderly would have been vulnerable. I think we have, there have been many challenges and everything is not defensible, but I'm not going to play Monday morning quarterback when the play is still in progress. It is for us to look at the future with a certain degree of hope, plan better, critique when necessary, but I think the final analysis will come up after we have seen the experience when the epidemic starts ebbing, and that is the time for postmortems, not now. Thank you very much, Srinath. Let me turn to, uh, uh, I think, what you have. You and Richard have presented somewhat different perspectives, but I actually think you are speaking from the same hymn book. The question really, uh, I think, for us is not whether or not a lockdown works. The question really is how should it be implemented, in what kind of manner should it be monitored, and most importantly, yeah. looking forward, uh, what do you think should be the role of uh, a strategy with a view towards um, uh, the freedom of movement of people and the return to social and economic life? This is going to be the closing question. So, uh, but for now, let me turn to Shamika. Shamika, I, I, I think you know one of the most important debates around the lockdown. So we heard from Srinath very much about the, the public health positive impacts of the lockdown. And I don't think anyone can really question uh, that for sure the lockdown must have reduced transmission by, by the very nature of the fact that if you're locked into the house, the virus cannot spread to anyone else. Uh, uh, the question is really about the balance between uh, the lives that have been clearly saved as a consequence of lockdown and uh, this other counter view that is there in, 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 in the debate, which is about the loss of livelihood. And is the loss of livelihood also in one way or another affecting mortality? Um, um, I'd like you to comment on, on, on this factor. Do you think, in fact, that this is, this is a meaningful choice or is it actually something that one has to take both of these into account uh, in, 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 in this context? For example, someone reminded me uh, that about 2,000 children, according to the global burden of disease uh, data, under the age of five die in India of malnutrition every single day, 2,000 a day. Just to put it in context, about 500 people have died of COVID-19 in India since January the 30th. So uh, if one assumes that poverty is related to hunger, uh, which I, I guess is a rhetorical assumption, uh, then one would assume that the malnutrition-related deaths are going to go up. So what is your view about striking the right balance between saving lives and saving livelihoods um, in a region where more than 75% of the workforce is in the informal sector with no social security net or very little social uh, security net? Shamika. Thank you, Vikram. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Let's start out by uh, basically uh, acknowledging uh, one very big gap in our own understanding, even as experts. Uh, you know, a lot of the predictions uh, which were made by the AP models and many, many AP models uh, were really taking into account the parameters from either early stage China or the Diamond Princess, uh, the cruise ship. Uh, and because of that, you know, of course, we saw very alarmist numbers, right? We, we were seeing 400 million, someone said 700 million. Uh, and, and, and those are the kind of early predictions that we were working with uh, in the beginning. And yet we know that, you know, whether it is uh, uh, contact tracing, whether it's the R naught, you know, these parameters are not a matter of faith or belief. They have to be estimated for different populations. 
they can't just be airlifted from one uh, a country and apply to another. And in fact, I'd argue in the Indian case, we need these parameters to be estimated at the state level to really make sense out of uh, you know, a lot of the predictions uh, that have been made. Uh, the other issue is also that, you know, based on our understanding, we are also assuming uh, that human beings remain the same throughout, right? And yet we know that, you know, the elasticity of demand for self-protection uh, really rises as the epidemic grows. So even if the lockdown is raised, you know, lifted tomorrow, it's unlikely that we will go about hugging people or shaking hands or moving back into life as we knew it before. And that will not just include ordinary citizens, it will include uh, institutions, firms. And I think also at the policy level, there is a lot of dynamism in the way we respond uh, to the situation. So let me just uh, first start out uh, by, uh, um, you know, just presenting some uh, early numbers, uh, just to give you a sense that moving beyond uh, the AP models, what we said is let's just put out simple statistics for what we know is true for India. Now, this is the, uh, you know, the log scale graph that I think most people are uh, familiar with now because it was made popular by the Financial Times. Uh, and here, if you look at the hotspot countries, and I define them as countries with more than 50,000 cases, look where India is. This is the left panel. Our total numbers as of last night, and we update this uh, early morning, is 13,430 cases, right? I mean, it's, it's really very, very small compared to uh, what you're seeing in the big hotspot countries. Uh, look at the total number of deaths. Now, you know, in, in even Belgium and Netherlands, which actually have fewer cases, have a very large number of uh, deaths. Uh, India's death rate, again, extremely low. Now, this is what we have been sort of uh, grappling around. This is a reference also that Srinath made earlier. This is the Indian total uh, confirmed cases growing. What you have to study is the change in the curvature, which tells you the change in the growth rate of the total number of cases. And you know, this is not random. It's quite systematic if you look at the fact that until the 23rd of May, we had a growth rate where we were doubling every three days. Of course, there is a base effect to be growing fast in the beginning, but from 23rd onwards, what you see is a decline. And you obviously take this back uh, to uh, policies enacted or what happened uh, in India two weeks before that. And it's important to acknowledge that while the first case of COVID was um, announced or reported by, by most countries, the OECD, uh, India, uh, in the last week of January, uh, what you saw is in the Indian case, they airlifted a lot of students from Wuhan, from Iran, from Milan. Many people were quarantined early, very early on and kept separate from the rest of the population. So very early on, the government started to do uh, and take steps, which on hindsight actually proved to be quite smart. Now, what you observe from the 29th of March is an escalation where the total number of cases started to grow every four days. So after the initial rise, there was a decline in the growth rate because of the early uh, steps taken. But 29th is when this super spreader, this massive congregation from the Jamaat uh, was discovered. And then very quickly, we realized it has spread to 17 states of the country. And then it's, it started to escalate the total number. Right? So that's one inflection point. And then where you see the latest inflection, Vikram, is on the 6th of April. From the 6th of April, what you see is a steady decline in the growth rate. Of course, overall numbers are increasing because we are still in the growth phase. But look at the rate at which it is increasing. In fact, as of today, our numbers are doubling every eight days. 
right? So this has been a steady decline. And it's important to take it back to what happened uh, two weeks before the 6th of April, and obviously the national lockdown happened. Now, beyond looking at day-to-day -day fluctuations, you know, it's important to look at moving averages. So we look at five-day moving averages. You see that while there is an increase, uh, you know, the increase is very muted. In India, I mean, the five-day moving averages for new confirmed cases is about uh, 1,100. If you look at daily death, it's about 40 uh, daily death. So again, in the context of the international uh, conversation, India's really, you know, looking pretty okay. If you look at the COVID death rate, uh, very, very low, right? Even in Japan, for instance, after all the early great success, now you see the death rate is actually beginning to uh, rise very uh, uh, rapidly. And, and so you see that they're going back to declaring national emergency, etc. There was a reference made to Belgium. Belgium lies absolutely at the bottom of this graph, where you see that not only is the death rate very high, but it is still growing. So every country is really witnessing uh, 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 you know, a situation which is very, very contextual and specific to that country. Now here, what you see is, you know, China, of course, I mean, it's, it's incredible. They've almost fitted the central limit theorem. I mean, it's like a, 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 a wonderfully fitted normal distribution. But, you know, if you look at the democracies, look at Germany, South Korea, France, Italy, Spain, it's a slow decline. And there are fluctuations on a day-to-day -day basis. In fact, you have days when, when deaths rise and recoveries decline. But on the whole, while it is slow, there is a steady improvement. Now, this is the graph that I really want uh, people to look carefully. This is India for you. It is a very large country. I think this is the fourth time uh, we have said that in this webinar. And that's because there are 28 states, very large states. These are the different states of the country. And I have included graphs from states which have reported at least 150 cases. Look at Maharashtra, still steadily increasing. In fact, the national numbers are largely driven from Maharashtra and even within Maharashtra, it's really Bombay and the surrounding areas. Uh, Delhi has had a couple of massive increases, but it looks like it's, you know, it's on, a, on a better path. Tamil Nadu again, high and flat, but look at Kerala. If you go down on the bottom uh, second row, Kerala looks like it's over the hill. In, 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 it really has brought it down uh, to under five in case of uh, you know, new confirmed cases. Haryana looks like it's uh, uh, you know, across the hill. Um, increasingly, if you look at Telangana and Andhra Pradesh, they seem to have things under control. And yet Maharashtra, Madhya Pradesh, uh, UP, these are states where uh, the increase is uh, pretty high. Remember, while we have a national lockdown, but health is a state subject in India. It's the state administration, the local administration, which determines exactly what are going to be the policies enacted to counter this infection. This is telling you what is the uh, death rate per million across the states of the country. Again, enormous variations. Kerala has 0 0.06 deaths uh, per million, very low, and it has maintained it at very low position. Uttar Pradesh is low, but it's increasing, of course, Uttar Pradesh has uh, 235 million people. Kerala has about 35 million people. So again, enormous variations. Uh, Delhi and Maharashtra are at the bottom of this. And you can see that not only are the death rates high, but also increasing. Now this is coming back to this. Because overall, what we are seeing is with an increase in the number of uh, tests, the total tests, the confirmed cases per 100 tests, they're rising. But you know, they're not rising. Uh, uh, the way you are seeing the, you know, the growth rate of the total tests are far, far higher, which means that 
with the conservative testing strategy that the government is following, you know, maintaining this level at around 4.2% means the targeting is, is, is perhaps good. And uh, we, we have, uh, while we still say, I mean, we continue saying that we need more testing, but clearly something in the strategy of targeted testing is working, right? Now, this is to tell you, going back to the early question you put to all of us, we are working with so limited, you know, such limited data uh, that, that it's quite, um, uh, you know, it, almost you feel a bit blindfolded when you're really trying to analyze such a complex, a massive uh, a crisis, this dynamic phenomenon with limited uh, amount of data. But again, you know, if you look at the Johns Hopkins data, you look at the ECD, you know, uh, DC, look at the WHO data, significant discrepancies, right? Uh, ICMR, of course, has, uh, uh, I mean, uh, pretty poor uh, reporting uh, uh, protocols. So they don't, they're not very regular. They tend to report at different times. They're usually PDFs. Sometimes they forget certain variables. Sometimes they add a variable. So the regularity or the lack of it really makes it difficult uh, to analyze uh, based on that. But the other is, you know, there are nodes that the contact tracing, the parameters on, based on which we are having this conversation needs to be estimated for the local population, which means you need patient level data. You really need massive surveys happening right now so that we can actually try and understand at, at the dynamics and the way this epidemic is unfolding in India beyond the national and the state averages. So this is where I um, sort of want to end my um, uh, presentation with the sense that, you know, with $2,000 per day, uh, per, per year per capita income. India is a resource poor economy. We shouldn't forget that when we compare our either the stimulus or the testing numbers uh, or, you know, just the responses with the OECD countries. Uh, and yet we have a national lockdown. The opportunity cost to uh, life and livelihood uh, is enormous because beyond COVID death, there is something called all-cause mortality. Uh, when OPDs are shut down uh, for many days, we do know that uh, patients suffer. Uh, from the health-seeking uh, aspect as well, access to healthcare. But of course, in terms of the economy, if you look at it, with the 21-day lockdown, the first phase, uh, our estimate, you know, our prediction for uh, GDP growth for this year has come down to 1% to 2%, right? Uh, close to 10 million workers, mainly in the informal sector, have a very serious risk to livelihood. Uh, if you look at the non-performing loans in the country, and you do know that the banking sector uh, has been uh, undergoing uh, you know, tremendous stress uh, over the last almost decade, uh, the NPAs are going to rise 4 to 5%. Now, obviously, all of this is weakening the economy further. If the lockdown continues, because now we are in phase two, and suppose this continues until mid, mid of May, then we're talking about a negative growth rate of minus two to minus 3%. Now you can imagine for a $2,000 per capita income, what this means for ordinary citizens. Uh, livelihood risk, 40 million people, right? Again, mainly informal. And this is also an underestimate, frankly. NPAs rising to about 10% means the banking sector weakens further. Uh, firms are not able to pay back loans and, and it's just a vicious cycle which just becomes worse and worse. So we are arguing that given that the state of the infection is nowhere as severe as it is in the OECD countries, uh, given the preparedness of the country in terms of uh, ramping up uh, health infrastructure, at least fever, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, clinics and having uh, beds, uh, having protective equipments, uh, etc., mobilized. We are saying that we now need to lift the lockdown, of course, in a calibrated way. 
which means if it is geographically done, and by the way, right now we have about 325 districts in the country, which are COVID free. Of course, the only way to tell that is we start to also test for community spread in those places. But you know, based on the symptoms, uh, we are seeing that a very large part of the country is not affected. 170 districts are hotspots, so the focus needs to continue in those places. Uh, but we need to ramp up testing further. We need to continue to uh, uh, measure community spread simply because this lockdown is very expensive. And to make an informed decision on how to raise, uh, lift this uh, lockdown, if it has to be calibrated, then it should be based on the knowledge of the spread of Because once we open, then we have to have on-site testing. Uh, Punjab, for instance, has declared that, you know, we are going to open our manufacturing firms uh, for all firms which has, have the capability to do on-site on testing and, and screening of, of the employees. Uh, you're going to see enforced uh, and you know, enhanced new protection protocols, uh, which means firms are going to require uh, for uh, 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 people only to come back if they do not show the symptoms, uh, uh, which, which means uh, they have to be necessarily tested. So I think... Uh, you know, it's important to realize that we know what we know, Vikram. We have certain amount of data. We have to make the best use in terms of informing policy uh, on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, but it looks like India is, is nowhere uh, close to the OECD countries as far as the severity of the outbreak itself is concerned. So we need to minimize our costs on the economy front. Thank you. Thank you, Shamika. Thank you so much. And I want to turn to our last panelist who represents one of the other very populous countries of the South Asian region. Uh, uh, Sabina, I actually would want to really hear from you um, about your impression about the impact of these policies that have focused on individual behavior um, on the social structures and particularly the inequities that are very prevalent in South Asia. Um, is there a differential impact of these policies? And I also want to draw on some of the questions that have been uh, submitted. We've had a bunch of questions coming in, and I thought I'd also perhaps use this opportunity to wrap some of those in. For example, uh, the differential impact on women and girls, uh, which I, I, I think is a particular area of your expertise as well, the differential impact on migrant workers. I don't know if you've had the same uh, situation in Bangladesh as we've seen rollout in India. And so really drawing on your understanding of the social stratification of South Asia, how do these focuses on individual behavior uh, impact differentially across the, uh, the different strata of our society? Um, and, uh, and, and really what is happening in Bangladesh really? If you could also update us all on the current state of policies and to what extent do you see uh, uh, the, the, the level of constriction of the economy uh, being the price that people will have to pay in order to control uh, the spread of the epidemic? It's night here, so I think it's good morning in, in, in the States and everywhere else is different timings. Um, I'm a medical anthropologist, so it's been fascinating to listen to the different perspectives. Um, I'm going to speak a little bit from the community perspectives. We've been undertaking some rapid surveys around urban rural Bangladesh and also case studies in the slum settlements and amongst the more marginalized groups. Uh, one thing that uh, there's a couple of three areas that I want to cover is the structure of how we understand disease and models of disease. The second uh, point I want to cover is how do people who live in the sort of the bottom of the social hierarchy, economic hierarchy, um, uh, experience these policies? And then finally, uh, what are the implications as we move forward? So one thing is that in Bangladesh, it's in the first time of its own history, there's been such a big shutdown. 
So you can imagine the magnitude of how people are viewing coronavirus, COVID-19. And this is across all socioeconomic classes. And I'm going to come back to this point about stigma and fear that's much more widespread. The fear of infection, the fear of dying. Uh, with the poor, it's amplified, it's magnified. They have no social safety nets. All they have is their hands, their feet, they can work, they earn daily. As Richard was saying, and um, Shamika earlier, a majority of our population work on and rely on daily labor. If you have a shutdown, which is restricted movement, restricted transport, shutting down educational institutions, I, as someone from a better economic background, can still sit and work at home. For many of the poorest, their entire lives have come to a halt. And the reality of this is that when we have an approach, and I agree, shutdown is not an easy decision. I don't have any easy uh, answers, but I would say, there's some moral ethical dilemmas we're talking about here. Hunger versus health risks. Hunger versus dying. What would, what would the poor people say if you talk to them? We did a survey of 1,306. I mean, this is longitude and we're going to continue this rapid assessment. They actually talk about, yes, Appa, I'm scared. I'm nervous. Or, you know, and, and the reality is less than 38% of the 1,306 had any clear idea of the symptoms of the coronavirus. So many of them are conflating it with a cough, cold, and fever. So one of the problems with that is that there's a lot of surveillance now of each other and internalized fears of coming out with this symptom and being socially ostracized. So there's a lot of fear around what is corona, what does it mean? Against the whole backdrop of a shutdown that gives reinforces the message that this is a huge, huge deadly uh, pandemic. The reality is we don't know enough. We have low levels of testing. We've got, you know, uh, reports of deaths that are, you know, some would argue are probably underestimated. People don't know about the comorbidities. But um, what I really wanted to say is that in public health, it, although it's changing, one of the predominant um, approaches is looking at individual determinants of health. And going back to that whole point about context, we can't take away the contextual realities, the structural and social inequalities of most of these individuals' lives, the rickshaw puller, the garment worker, the daily laborer, they live in conditions that don't allow them to maintain the basic precautionary guidelines, masks, a social distancing. You've got 11 members of a family in one crowded room in a very crowded slum. We're one of the most densely populated countries in the world. We can get into debates, well, if we didn't have lockdown, there would be greater spread of transmission. But the reality is, they have very precarious lives. And there are various kinds of social disruptions. We see violence, we see arguments, we see social unrest, particularly with relief distribution. Uh, the government has rolled out a national stimulus package with food. It's been slow to start. Uh, there are uh, criticisms around mismanagement. There's also criticisms around food being given to um, all members of the communities, particularly the poor. And there's a lot of criticism that certain groups are being favored. Um, uh, you know, in, in our case studies, we found that many of them talk about where, you know, you, even though you have these lives in these spaces, there's now these uh, frictions and fractures because everyone's competing for resources and now it's for food. People can't work. People are using savings. People are borrowing loans on higher credit. People are talking about... Um, 
the, the uncertainty of the lockdown, because when we first started the lockdown, it was March 26th. It was extended for, 20, uh, for two more weeks under, it's a holiday, and now it continues to be extended. One major issue that keeps coming up is fear and stigma, and this is not just amongst the poor. We have entire streets and buildings shut down under lockdown in many parts of Dhaka City. One person is found to be infected. So if you can imagine at the, the most poorest communities and settlements and poorer rural areas, this is sort of magnified and amplified. So people talked about, I try and hide my cough. Or uh, we have stories of people who fled slum settlements to go back to the village, people who fled villages, their stories and incidences of relatives being dumped if they have um, uh, suspected infection. Uh, and I think one of the real challenges is, and it's a couple, it's a very complex situation. How long can a, a shutdown be sustained in low-income countries while, you know, uh, there are certain steps that need to be taken to control transmission, but how long can a lockdown be sustained when we have different, uh, differential set of sort of pool of resources, when most of the poor don't have safety nets and other sectors are getting increasingly affected, you know, business sectors, and what is the longer term impact? We're seeing it unfold. And, you know, one of the questions I ask myself when I read through all the transcripts and the survey materials is, what would the community say? Have we ever asked them as decision makers and policy makers? Uh, would they say that, let me work. I'd rather choose to die, but have food in my stomach than die of an illness because everyday life is precarious. They deal with multiple challenges. Dengue is coming. You've got other kinds of health problems. You've got, um, you know, uh, uh, children dying, infant mortality, uh, neonatal death. You've got uh, diarrhea, you've got all kinds of uh, coexisting challenges. So, I mean, I, I think for me, one of the, the questions is when I, when, when I do my research and I look at uh, what, what the narratives are and when I look at the surveys, some of the key takeaway is there is stigma and fear and we need to really address this through health messaging because the shutdown kind of reinforces that. Uh, we don't have a lot of choices maybe. Uh, maybe we have to take these steps because of, of, of uh, to to contain transmission. At the same time, if food is not given and distributed well to farmers and the poorest, there will be starvation. Uh, if this continues for another couple of weeks or months, if this is not um, handled in a way that acknowledges that for the poor, health is much more broader. Health is not siloed in the way we've siloed it into biomedical disease and individuals. It's very much integrated Health, social, economic is very much a broader health, a broader perspective of everyday life and living. I'd like to leave you with that as my initial thoughts. Thank you. Sabina, thank you so very much uh, for that. So with that, I'd like to thank our four panelists very much. I'd like to thank the nearly 600 participants uh, who were on the webinar and uh, hand over back to you, Chelsea, for your closing remarks. Thank you to our attendees and a very big thank you to all of our panelists and our moderator for joining us today. That's all for today.